is Robert Furrow, and welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God, because God's Word is alive and it's active. Jesus said His Word would not return back void, and that we're blessed when we study it and do it. There's a blessing in studying and doing the Word of God. It is the authority by which we trust and by which we make our decisions as to what exactly we're going to believe. Therefore, we want to approach the Bible and read what it says to determine what we're going to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God. Instead of approaching the Bible with our preset ideas trying to find evidence for them. If what we believe is wrong, then we want to know. We are on a truth quest. Now, if you're new here for the first time, want to welcome you. Uh, this is a podcast, and you can subscribe to Truth Quest Podcast with Robert Furrow anywhere that you get uh, your podcasts. And we hope uh, that they're a blessing to you. You get our long-form teachings, you get our shorter hot topics, and you get our Q&As. And we do our Q&As twice a week, every Wednesday and every Saturday. If you have a question, then go ahead and write the word question down, and then and then reread and then write out your question, but reread it a couple of times to make sure that it makes sense and that uh, we have the right and the just the, the what you, what you want to ask and what you want to say. All right. So uh, if you uh, are ready now, I am. I think uh, good to see you guys. By the way, um, coming on here now uh, is as always. Uh, it's good to see uh, you guys joining us. I hope that you are blessed today as we take time uh, to look into the Word of God. Now, the first question that we have today comes from a question that we had the last time we were together with our Q&A, and that is, is Jehovah the name of God? Uh, someone was talking to a Jehovah Witness. Obviously, the Jehovah Witnesses are convinced that that is the proper pronunciation. I answered it and wasn't really satisfied, so I wanted to come back and revisit that a little bit today. So over 6,900 times in the, the Old Testament, the name of God is given. And in ancient Hebrew writings, there were only consonants. There were not vowels. Uh, you knew if words had the same consonants, you knew what the words meant by their, um, by their, their context. So that even today, there are words that are spelled the same, but because of context, we know what the word is. And that's exactly how they did it. And they pronounced the words and passed on the pronunciation without vowels to their children. So that has been lost over the years because Hebrew became a lost language that was born again in a way and that is spoken again today. And so the name of God was first brought up in the Bible in chapter 2 of Genesis. We find Yahweh being mentioned, and, and that's the way I'm going to refer to it. And, and as you'll see, I'm not going to say that that's necessarily the way that the name of God was spoken. Um, but it's the Y-H-W-H in Hebrew. Those are the four consonants. It's Yod, which is the Y. And remember, it goes backwards, right? So it's Yod, which is in ancient Hebrew, the hand, the arm and the hand, which the Yod means to grasp. And then it's the, uh, the He, which means to worship. And that's twice. It's Y-H-W-H. -H. So the worship, grasping worship, 
and then the YHW, which is pronounced WA or VA for some people, uh, is um, to, um, I can't remember now exactly what it is. Oh, it's tent peg, it's to fasten. So you have the hand grasping worship and fastening to it. That's the ancient Hebrew. Every letter had a meaning. That's the meaning of those letters and is believed why they came up with certain names. Uh, today, we know that the name, that this name YHWH represented I am. That's what Moses was told from the burning bush. Abraham identified this name for God before it was given to Moses in the burning bush. So we know the name of God was used a lot, as I said. And, and when you read the Bible today, depending on the translation you read, if you read a King James Version that is an older one, it could use Jehovah. Uh, if you use the New King James, the NIV, um, the ESV, it's going to use Lord in all capitals to speak of the Tetragrammaton. Uh, if um, the way that these consonants would be pronounced is Yod, He, Wa, He, Yod, He, Wa, He, or Yod, He, Wat, Wat, He, Yod, He, Wat, He. That's how the consonants would be pronounced. Now, because it was lost and during the the around the time of Christ, they wouldn't mention the name of God. And then the exact pronunciation was lost. Then the Masoretes, who began to 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 be to scribe from about five hundred to a thousand CE, they uh, they they took the consonants from Adonai and they added them into the YHWH, which came up with Yehovah which was Latinized into English as Jehovah. Now, it wasn't done maliciously. It wasn't done to, it was, it, they wanted to say the Lord when they read uh, Jehovah or, or the Tetragrammaton. And so they put the consonants from the Lord, um, Adonai, in there, and it got translated into a King James Bible or to a, uh, to a certain Bible, I can't remember exactly which context, as Jehovah in certain places. And so it caught on there as being the name of Jehovah. And if you look in, in older dictionaries, it'll have Jehovah as the name of God. If you look in more modern day dictionaries, they're gonna use Yahweh as the name of God. Now, a lot of Jews still today will not pronounce the Tetragrammaton. They say Hashem, which is the name. So when they get there, they say the name. That's the name of God. The truth is, um, we don't know the exact pronunciation. Uh, just as in English, you could take certain continents and you could make a pretty educated guess. They've made an educated guess. And uh, Dr. Michael Brown, who is a Hebrew scholar, says that Yahweh is very close to the pronunciation of it. In fact, he says that they took the vowels from Hashem, the name, and put them into Yahweh to come up with what we would pronounce as Yahweh today. The bottom line is, we don't know how the name is pronounced, but we, we most certainly know that Jehovah is not the way it's pronounced because it was the vowels of Adonai put into Jehovah. And all you got to do is a little bit of research to figure that out. I don't think that this is worth arguing over with a Jehovah Witness. Uh, I think that there are so many more things that you can talk about to them. A lot of times when you get in a conversation with a Jehovah Witness, they want to get you onto something and you don't want to agree with anything that they, that they say. 
And so I have no problem going, like if they want to argue about the cross, a stake, Jesus being crucified on a stake rather than a cross, I have no problem going, it doesn't matter to me whether it was a cross or a stake. I believe it was a cross. There are certain reasons why I believe that, but I always want to come back to the person of Jesus because the Bible so clearly teaches Jesus as God. And so when they want to argue over Jehovah, I'm, I'm just like, I don't think so, but let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about whether or not God became a man and came down to this earth. Let's talk about whether or not God called the Son of God, God, in Hebrews chapter 1. Whether Jesus referred to himself as the Almighty in Revelation chapter 1. Whether John said everything was created by Jesus and without him nothing was created. Uh, so, uh, but I, I do find the Tetragrammaton fascinating. It's one of my favorite parts in the Old Testament is looking at the names of God. Hallelujah. Yah is, is that name of God. And sometimes Yah is used instead of uh, Y-H-W-H. Um, Yad, Hey, uh, Wahe, or Yahai Vahe, depending on, on how you would want to pronounce that. So um, I hope that that is helpful. And um, I realize, and I, don't, I think that there shouldn't be a stand taken on it. I realize that I didn't take a stand on it because I don't, you know, sometimes I think we're making stands where we don't need to make stands. And we've kind of lost that pronunciation, so <clears throat> we're not quite sure exactly how it was pronounced, but we know that Jehovah isn't right because of uh, the history there. And like I said, all you got to do is spend a little bit of time in research and you find out that the Masoretes added the name, the vowels from Adonai into the Tetragrammaton to come up with Jehovah. And that most certainly is not right. And Yahweh is much closer. Um, but I think if God wanted us to know exactly what his name it was, then it would be more confident than that. We would we would know what the, we would have some evidence that would tell us what that name of God is. And who knows? Maybe there will be something that will be found. Um, but exactly how the ancient Hebrews language was spoken was lost. The vowels that are added in it today are different than the vowels that they had then, um, and and the way it was spoken uh, back then. Uh, they don't even know whether the way the you, the syllables are used, which is different in Hebrew than it is in English. They don't even know where the way the syllables are used are used in the correct manner. All right. So thanks again for being here. I appreciate you guys. And if you have a question, just go ahead and write the word question before it so I can see it in the comment section. And uh, then we'll go ahead and take your questions as they come in. One question per person, please. And um, we will go ahead and start with um, Keith. Keith has a question from uh, Rod. Rod, uh, I'm glad you're joining us. This is from Rod Sanchez, who asked a question during past Sunday, Saturday evening service. Uh, were the disciples listed according to the tribes of Judah? All right, Keith, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I'm not sure that I understand the question completely. Um, were the disciples listed according to the tribes of Judah? So do we mean the tribes of Israel? And then was Peter listed, which tribe would you want to list first? So it, let's, just, let's just assume that that's the case, that we're going to take the list from the Old Testament of the tribes of Israel, and then we're going to take whatever tribes, Peter, you know, Nathaniel and, and, and Matthew were in, and we're going to list them in that order. In the Old Testament, the lists are never consistent. Sometimes even Dan is left out 
probably because some of the horrible things that Dan did. They actually attacked Israelites and took their land. And so Dan is left out in some of them and there's no consistency that is there. So I, I don't know what according to the tribe of Judah would be. I, I assume he meant Israel. Um, and if he meant Israel, then I'm just gonna say we don't have any consistent lists. Uh, and I don't know, I've never done the research to figure out what tribe Peter's from. I just assumed that he was from Judah and fr um, from, yeah, from Judah, that most of them were. Um, so I, I think they probably all, most of them were from Judah. Remember, Israel was taken by the Assyrians. Some of them came back and we did have some from the other tribes that were around, but most of the people that were around during the days of Jesus were from the tribe of Judah. They were taken into Babylon and then they were returned from Babylon. Remember it was Judah that was taken into Babylon and Benjamin would have been taken as well. And then they were returned. We know that Paul was a Benjamite. He says he was a Benjamite. Uh, the rest of them, I think, were almost all of them from Judah. Um, although, obviously, I could be wrong. Need to do a little bit of research on that. But I don't think that they're listed because of that. I think you have Peter listed at the top of the list because he is obviously the leader. He's the one that speaks for them when they're speaking for them. Um, he's the one that Jesus did say, I give you the keys to the kingdom. Now, later on, he gave that same authority. Whatever you bind on earth will be be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He gave that same authority to all of the apostles, but he gave it to Peter first. And then Judas is always on the bottom of that list. So um, interesting question. If you find out any more research on uh, if we can tell where these guys, what tribe they were from, and if they're listed in that, in that manner, I don't think they are, but hey, I'm open. All right, so we have a question from Fact Check These Hands. Fact check these hands says, why did the Israelites continually go back to idol worship? Was it because it was easier or maybe more socially acceptable? Or was there more a more complicated reason? Yeah, I think that the idols that were around in Israel, even the idols that were around in Greek mythology, the pantheon of Roman and Greek um, gods, were all the gods of wine, the goddess of the hunt, um, the fertility goddess, uh, the, you know, Zeus was kind of like the all, the, the considered to be the, all, the powerful god, Jupiter, um, in Roman. Yeah, but if you wanted to, if you wanted to have your crops successful, then you gave a sacrifice to certain gods. And it was that way with the Canaanites as well. And the surrounding regions like Moab and Ammon, these other places that worship Bay of the Baals. They worshiped them because they believed that if they gave sacrifices to them, they would be helped. And so remember that, that Jacob's wife, Rachel, took with her the, the gods of, of Laban, Laban, her dad. So she took the idols with her. So idol... The, the worship of idols seemed to always be a problem uh, that they had to deal with, that they had to go through. And I think it was a lack of faith. I think they were taking what the culture was doing and trying to double down on it so that they would be able to be blessed. But God said, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy, take one day a week off, take one year off in seven years, and I'll provide for you. But they just didn't trust God. And so in not trusting God, it was easy for them to go back to the culture. And the warning to us, fact check these hands, is that we could start trusting in what the world trusts in. 
instead of in God, that we would not be following God's, listening to God's word and living the way that God tells us to live. But instead we would look and try to do what the world wants us to do or thinks that we should be able to do. And then we're falling back on idolatry almost exactly the way that they did. Um, the It's interesting, the sin of Jeremiah came back over and over again in the Old Testament when you read it. Jeremiah was the servant of, of Solomon who became the king of Israel. And he set up two idols, in, one in Bethel and one in Dan, that were golden calves and said, this is your God, come and worship here. And they continually turned back to that golden calf. They did it in uh, when they came out of Egypt. They put up a golden calf and said, this is uh, your God, uh, worship him. And it just seems like they just wanted to be more like the world. The world worshiped these false gods, and so they worship the false gods. And we do the same thing. We wanna be more like the world. We, we live like the world rather than living like Christians. And I think that that is idolatry. Don't you know, um, James says, that friendship with this world is adultery to God. So that we've gotta separate ourselves and be separate and live the way that God tells us to live from the pages of scripture. All right, so thank you, uh, fact check these hands, I appreciate that. I think that um, it's not more complicated than them not going necessarily going back to what they were used to, but looking around them and seeing what the people around them did and what they believed and getting caught up in their culture instead of, instead of, in, uh, instead of really trusting in the culture of, that God had given them to trust in. All right, so uh, we have a question from Melissa. Melissa, good to have you here. Good to see you here today. Uh, if you're new here for the first time, uh, glad to have you. You can submit a question that you might have about the Bible, apologetics, about prophecy, um, by writing the word question or putting a question mark in front of it and then writing out your question, reread it a couple of times, make sure it makes sense, it says what you want it to say, and include uh, a reference if you have one, and we'll be able to look it up. So Melissa says, how can a Christian truly be one and suffer from depression. The Holy Spirit is in you. So how is feeling this way possible? All right, Melissa, um, let's just talk about that for a minute. The, so if you become a Christian, does that mean that you're not going to be distraught at all? Jonah was distraught in the belly of the fish. That's understandable, he's in the belly of a fish. Elijah was running from Jezebel after defeating the 450 prophets of Baal and Elijah prayed to die. He, it's enough, he prayed to die. And God had to intervene with an angel and strengthen him. Jeremiah asked, why was I born? Why didn't I die in my mother's womb? And in the Psalms, why so downcast, O my soul? Why is my soul so desperate within me? And you read so many of the Psalms where people are desperate and they are depressed. Be taking, becoming a Christian is not the same thing as taking a happy pill. You take a happy pill and then you're not depressed anymore. You take a happy pill, you're not depressed anymore. So that's not what Christianity is. We are living in the real world. Our minds, and have things that we go through, certain things depress us, certain things don't, and we serve God anyway. And it's not to say that 
that God is not the one we look to and can't lift us out of that kind of despair. We saw Jesus in despair. I feel so sorrowful that I could die in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so depression is not uncommon. And I would just say to you, Melissa, if you're dealing with depression, don't let the, the enemy attack you. We do want to put our trust in God. We do want to evaluate, is there something going on that is making me feel this way? But it's not uncommon for people to have some kind of a crisis in their lives. It's not uncommon to feel depression. Now, a a, a lot of people are put on antidepressants today, and they're discovering they don't work the way they thought they did. They thought it was connected to serotonin, Now they're discovering they don't really know. They think there is some chemical response, but they don't know if it's serotonin or something else. And so all of that makes me go, if you can not be on something, I'm not telling you if you're taking something to stop taking it because you got to stop taking it under your psychiatrist's care, your doctor's care, okay? Talk to them. However, um, don't think that being depressed or being down is this really strange thing that no one ever goes through or that just because you're a Christian, you're not gonna go through it. All of us do. It happens to everybody. And some people it happens more so. And um, I would say, Melissa, find someone you can talk to that you can have a conversation with, that you can just tell how you're feeling. Maybe they'll be able to identify something. It's amazing how talking to someone who knows what they're talking about, when they can ask you questions and really learn what you're going through, that is much more than how can a Christian that has the Holy Spirit suffer from depression. Um, I don't think that Christianity works that way. It doesn't take us out of this world. It doesn't all of a sudden make everything work the way that it's supposed to. In fact, being in desperation, being depressed, might be something that God wants to work through in our lives and bring something good that comes out of it from our lives. So this idea that, and I'm so glad the Bible is full of so many people that struggle deeply with, with in crisis. Some of the great men of, of God in the past struggled with depression and were used by God in mighty ways. So there, there, are, there are those that are more prone to be moody or to be depressed. There are those who are, are more prone to be more positive and more, and, and more uplifted. And who's to say that the way a person feels is right or wrong? But we go through what we go through, put our focus on God and live for Him. All right? So I really do hope that you can find someone that you can talk to, sit down, and have a long conversation with that can really help you with this. Um, it's it's not as easy as you've got the Holy Spirit, so you should never be depressed, okay? And don't let anybody tell you that. That's an, a massive oversimplification, all right? So thank you very much, uh, Melissa, for joining us. I hope that that is helpful. Um, and so we have a question from Jari. Jari, good to see you. Jari says, uh, why did God use King Jehu, or Yehu, who, he was a Yehu, I tell you, who was also an idol worshiper to take down Jezebel, also is is blowing on someone or slaying them in the spirit where they fall down biblically sound a, a second outpouring. All right, so two questions. Um, why did God use Jehu? 
uh, because God uses different people to do different things. So there were people in the Bible that were ungodly that God used. And there are a lot of examples of it. And Jehu is, is an example of it. God doesn't need someone to be a Christian in order to use them or a believer in order to use them. And so um, I, she's thrown out of the window. Um, what is it, Jehu yells up, somebody throw her out the window, they grab her, they throw her out the window. And then they go in for a little while and come back and she gets eaten by dogs, just as I think it was Elijah had prophesied um, that it would happen to her. Um, but yeah, God, God never says, look, at, look, he uses Balaam, who's a false prophet, to bless Israel from a mountaintop three times. So, I mean, there's a lot of examples of that in the Bible. God doesn't need someone to be a, a Christian to use them. And God can use us just as we are, open up ourselves to him. That doesn't mean we don't want to live right, but we want to live right because we love him, because we follow him. We don't want to live right so that we can be more powerful God and shoot powerful for God and shoot, you know, lightning out of our fingertips and do these great things for God. I remember being taught that, but we want to draw near to him because we want to know him and love him. And then he, he will use us for his glory. Now, blowing on someone and slaying them in the spirit, totally unbiblical. And um, I think this is very important that I, I spend a little bit of time on this topic. Um, I, you guys, some of you guys know my background, that I came out of the United Methodist Church where I got saved. I went into a hyper-charismatic church, went to an Assembly of God church for a couple of years, and then backslid, walked away from the Lord, then went back to a hyper-charismatic church, and then to a four-square church, which is a Pentecostal church. So I have five or six years of my life that I was in the Pentecostal church. And one thing that I loved about the assembly of God, the four square churches, was the the anticipation that God was going to move. I remember sitting there in that pew and with my eyes closed during worship, thinking God's gonna move here today. I remember getting a little dizzy and thinking, is that you? I'm looking for God to touch me. And from time to time, I say to the church that I pastor, Calvary Tucson, that's such a good thing. And we ought to have an anticipation when we come to church that God's going to move because they had that kind of an anticipation. Now, um, I went up when they would have the slain in the spirit thing going on. So they would have catchers like they do. And I would go up because I wanted everything God wanted from me. I really wanted if God, I, I wanted whatever God had. And so I went up. And I would raise my hands when we get there. The guy would touch my forehead. I knew there was a catcher there. I would fall back into his arms. He would lay me down on the ground. And then I would wait a few minutes and then get up. I was never knocked down for real. And so um, someone said to me, well, then you're faking it. And I wasn't really faking it. I was giving myself to whatever God wanted to do. And so when I lifted my hand and he put his hand on me and started pushing me back, I was just going with whatever God wanted. Now, I, I never was knocked down by God. Uh, I have a friend of mine who said that he would not go down unless he was knocked down by God. And then he went down one time and says, the last time I talked to him, that yes, God knocked me down. Now, if God wants to knock down his children and bless them by knocking them down, God can certainly do that. Who's to say he can't? Is God gonna go, well, Robert said I couldn't, 
so I won't. So God can do whatever God wants to do. However, when it comes to practice within the church, we have the word of God as our example. And why would we do something in worship that isn't biblical? Now, we're not talking about microphones or instruments or technology that allows us to be able to reach more people. We're talking about practices in our worship towards God. We're told that our services even done decently and in order. We're told that when there are tongues, it's two or at the most three. There has to be an interpretation that is there. Uh, we're, we're never told to line people up, lay hands on them, and have them knocked down. Paul seemed to have been knocked down in this uh, by the spirit, but he was a non-believer, became a believer from that experience. We just don't have anything biblically there. And so I don't want to practice it. There are a lot more things that happen like that within the Pentecostal church. When you lay hands on someone and pray in tongues, well, you're praying, your spirit is praying to God. So you lay hands on them, you think you're interceding for them in tongues. No, you would be do better to groan because the Bible says that God uses our groanings and he intercedes for us. Uh, it'd probably be better to lay your hands on somebody and by the move of the spirit, intercede for them. Look for the spirit to help you to pray for them that you would intercede for them, then laying hands on them and praying for them in tongues and all of the other bizarre, weird things that have happened within the Pentecostal church. I'm not saying they don't know God. I'm not saying they don't love God. I'm not saying they're not real Christians. I'm simply saying that a lot of times things that are done are not biblical. They're just not given to us in as a direction from the word of God. And so we want to do the things when it comes to worship, where we worship him. And um, the idea that God is going to somehow do something in your life by being knocked down in worship by somebody that lays their hands on your praise for you, it's just not in the Bible and may very well elevate that person that touches you in a way that God doesn't want them elevated. That you think, well, that guy's got the power of God inside of him. And um, I've seen people that do such things have a lot of abuses. They do a lot of abuses from those things. All right. So thank you very much, Jari. I appreciate your question. Um, we have a question from Brandon. Um, Brandon says, um, question, what are your thoughts on church worship team members playing in a secular group? All right. Um, thanks, Brandon. I appreciate that. Um, I, I don't think I would have a problem with them playing in a secular group. Now, there are a few caveats to that. What kind of a group is it? And could it be considered to be neutral? Are you singing things that are worldly or in the flesh? So you would have to determine whether or not you felt comfortable glorifying something that was in the flesh. Well, let's think about Christians who are actors. Um, Christians who are musicians that don't sing necessarily Christian music. Uh, sometimes there's a line that's crossed that could be problematic. Um, but if you are making a living in a group and it's not somehow overly in the flesh, 
then I'd have a problem with it any more than I would have a problem with a Christian who's a plumber or a Christian who's a, you know, a doctor or, or a lawyer. So I guess he's not a crooked lawyer. Then I wouldn't have a problem with that. So I would not judge someone that that I met who was on a worship team and they were in a secular group. I wouldn't judge them. I might want to find out more information if they were on one of our worship teams, but I would not judge them just because of that. All right, Brandon, I appreciate that. Hopefully um, that answers your question. I think um, we all want to do things that are going to bring glory to God and, and let God be glorified. And sometimes what we do can really make a difference in the lives of certain individuals. All right. So thank you very much. Uh, we have a question from Susan. Susan says, question on taking the Lord's name in vain. Some say, oh man, uh, shouldn't we, uh, should, shouldn't be said either along with God or Jesus, etc. Um, how does God hear it? All right, Susan, thank you very much for your question. So um, is saying golly just as bad as using the name of God? Um, you know, you, if something happens, you go, golly. Is that the same as someone saying the name of Jesus or saying God's name? Um, first of all, when it says, thou shalt not take the name of, your, of the Lord your God in vain. Um, I think there's a lot of different ways that that could be taken. One of them could be that you would use the name of your, the Lord, your God as an oath, but it's in vain. You don't really mean it. Peter did this when he swore that he wasn't with Jesus. He called down curses, meaning cursed be the, you know, my mom or whatever he said, cursed if, if I am one of their disciples. And uh, I swear by heaven that, that, or by God, that I'm not one of his disciples. So he's taking God's name in vain. Uh, Jacob did this when he deceived his dad with his mom's help. And his dad said, how did you get so successful on your hunt? He thought it was Esau. And Jacob says, well, God was with me. He just used God's name in vain. God wasn't with him and he used his name in vain. So there's more than just saying God when you don't mean it. I agree that that's taking God's name in vain. There are some who say it's not, but it is. You're saying God's name and you're, you're using it as a curse word. I like what um, Ray Comfort says. He'll say to someone, have you ever used God's name in vain? And they'll say, yeah, I have. And he says, would you use your mother's name as a curse word? And they go, no. And he goes, why not? because you love your mother. If you love God, then you wouldn't use his name in vain. You wouldn't use his name in that way. And when someone does curse with God's name, it is shocking to me. As, as a believer, it does, it sets me back a little bit. And I think that's probably all of us who love Christ, who would never think of using his name in that way. Um, I would not want to become overly legalistic, Susan, to tell people, you can't say geez or golly or, you know, I don't know, darn. I, I just don't want to become over legalistic. When you become overly legalistic, then you begin to, to put rightness with God into a category 
of what someone's doing rather than in a relationship with him. And I would not condemn someone. I would not judge someone for using a word like that. And, and I'll confess that I have said golly before. Golly. And hopefully you won't judge me because I said golly. I don't think that's taking the Lord's name in vain. I understand the idea that it is a substitution for a name where they, someone would take God's name in vain, but maybe it's not a substitution for me, right? Maybe it's golly for me. Maybe that's just golly. I just say golly when I'm frustrated that something didn't go right. I'm like, golly, that's, maybe that's all that is to me. It's not a substitution for God. If it's a substitution in someone's mind, then yeah, that would be wrong. But how are you going to judge that? So, um, and certainly say, oh man, I, yeah, I don't think that that's a problem. Um, you would have really had trouble in the seventies because we said, oh man, a lot, man. Um, all right. So I hope that answers your question, Susan. Uh, I don't think, I don't think that there's a, a huge problem. And I think we got to stay away from trying to judge people or getting nitpicky. I think there's enough other things out there that we could talk about doing what is right and wrong than getting caught up in those things. All right. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, we have a question from Albert. Albert says, uh, we know that Satan, it was good to see you, Albert, by the way. We know that Satan brings up our past sins to accuse us, but there are times when the Holy Spirit will remind us of past sins and warn us against the future sins. How can we tell the difference? Okay, so um, thank you, Albert, for your question. So Satan is the accuser of the brethren. It's what devil means. Jesus is our advocate, and he, uh, he advocates for us. He also intercedes for us. He prays for us. Like he said, he prays for Peter. Um, the Holy Spirit there are times when the Holy Spirit reminds us of our past sin. Um, I'm not sure I agree with that statement, Albert. I think I'm aware of my past sin. Um, I think that when God forgives us, he, he, he puts it behind his back. He remembers it no more. God chooses to let it go. And I think what you're saying is that the Holy Spirit might go, don't do that. You remember what happened last time? Or, or the last time you were, you know, you warned that you might get caught and don't do that. And so, yeah, I'm not sure that the Holy Spirit reminds us of our past sin to warn against future sin. Um, I, I think the accusing of Satan. Satan is such a creep. He tempts us, then he, then he accuses us. And if the Holy Spirit were going to remind us that of a past sin to stop us from a future sin, I would think it would not have that condemnation level to it. I think it would be something that would be more convicting and uplifting. I think you can tell when Satan is condemning us uh, and when God is convicting us, warning us, trying to get us to take the escape that's in temptation. So, um, yeah, I just, I just don't know if I would agree with 
where the Holy Spirit would re will remind us of our past to warn us against future sin. Um, I'm certainly not saying God couldn't do that. I just don't know how often that happens. But I do think you could tell the difference. I think the Holy Spirit is going to be doing something. The, the, the devil's doing it to condemn you, to push you down. Um, the Holy Spirit is not doing it for that reason. He's doing it to lift you up and that you may be successful and really walk close with him. So I hope that helps. Albert, you certainly can ask a follow-up on that if it, that wasn't sufficient, all right? feel like it might not have been completely sufficient, all right? Um, so we have a question from Just and True. Just and True, good to see you. Good to have you here with us today. If you are here for the first time, we'd like to welcome you. Uh, you can ask a question about the Bible, prophecy, difficult questions in the Bible, um, whatever it is that you've been thinking about, and um, we'll take time to bring them on the screen here, look at them, and answer those questions. Um, John the Baptist, was John the Baptist an ASEAN? Well, let me just go ahead and talk about who the ASEANs were. Um, so we know that John the Baptist was a Judean. We know because his father was a, lived in Jerusalem, so they were in the region of Judea as opposed to the Galilee. And that John was a son of a priest, so a Levite, and that Jesus' cousin was from Judah, the tribe of, of Judah, and that Jesus was in Egypt and then in Nazareth. The Essenes are a group of people that lived out by the Dead Sea. And they are the ones that is believed, it is believed that they were the group that hid the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's some people believe that it was other than the Essenes, but the Essenes were a sect of Judaism, kind of like the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, and they believed certain things. They were very apocryphal, at least if the Dead Sea Scrolls are from the Essenes, then they were very apocryphal because there's a lot of apocryphal writings in the Dead Sea material that's there. Now, if you go to Israel today, and I don't know if they're still showing this film or not, they did the last time I went, which was three years ago. And um, you go into the the area where they have the Dead Sea Scroll, uh, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And I love going there. I love talking about the findings of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And if you go there, there's a film that they do where they show John the Baptist being an ASEAN. And so they believe that he was. Now, the Bible never says that he is. And if the Bible doesn't say that he is, then I think we probably should assume rather he wasn't than assume he was. John seemed to have radical beliefs, different beliefs, lived in the wilderness, was a wild man like Elijah, right? Ate locusts and wild honey. People came out to be baptized by him. This was not how the ASEANs lived. So there's no connection. So when we come up and we say, well, I think that John the Baptist was an ASEAN, then I would want to see why you think that. And, and if a scholar says, I, I you know, writes a, a paper, I believe that John the Baptist was an ASEAN because of this, and he makes some connections between the ASEANs and John the Baptist, then we can look at his paper and judge those connections. But so many things are just said that just don't have any evidence. John the Baptist was an ASEAN. Jesus was an ASEAN. I've heard that as well. And, um, I don't know that there is any, there's no evidence that John the Baptist was a CN, and I don't think that he was. I think when you start looking at the beliefs of the ASEANs, they are different than John the Baptist, who had a call from God. Remember, he was fairly young, had a call from God 
to be a messenger to go before Jesus. All right. So I think uh, that's, I think that's that. Justin Drew. All right. Thank you very much for your question. I do appreciate that. Um, yeah. And Justin Drew has another question. We usually do one question at a time, but I'm interested in your second question. Is um, Yad He Wahe Hebrew numeric value found in DNA? I've never heard this. It's it's interesting. Um, I think most things like this are not true when it comes down to it. Um, I wouldn't reject it outright or immediately by saying that it wasn't that uh, it, it can't be true. Um, but I doubt it. Um, the the uh, what is the numeric value? Uh, I've looked into the new numeric value because each Hebrew letter has a, a numeric value to it. And Joshua, the, or, or Yeshua, the name of Jesus in Hebrew, has a certain numeric value. Um, yad heh wah has a certain value to it. Um, and I don't know what those are, but I don't know why it couldn't be found in DNA in some way. I don't know how you would make it significant. Um, I think it's something like, 36 or 39. And then people have talked about how you can divide it and how you can multiply it. And, and maybe all of that comes into play. Um, but maybe someone could take time to look. If only we had something that connected all the computers in the world that we could find out what the numeric value of Yahweh was by someone watching this typing in, what is the numeric Hebrew numeric value of yad he wad he or yad he vah however you would say it. All right. So thank you, Justin True. I appreciate that. Like I said, I'm just always interested in the Tetragrammaton, the name of God, the I am, I, the ever existent one, I am, which is, by the way, what YHWH means. The one I am, the one who exists forever, the one who's always existed. That's what it means. That's what the name means. Names in Hebrew always have a meaning. And um, uh, Yad He Wahe means ever existent or I am, as Jesus said in the garden. All right, so we have a question from Daru. Daru, good to hear from you again. Good to have you here today. And Daru says, hi, Robert, is it sin to have anxiety? Because my job was uh, an autopsy technician and I developed high anxiety now because uh, Jesus said, be anxious for nothing. Right, um, all right, Daru, I, I appreciate that. Um, Anxiety, I'm not going to say it's a sin. I'm going to say it's a condition that we don't want to live in. So be anxious for nothing, but everything with prayer and supplication, let requests be made known to God. So that's out of Philippians. And it's a way to help us in our anxiety. Does the Bible say be anxious for nothing mean that if you are anxious, you are being sinful? I think it means there is a way out of anxiety. And if you are, depends on what you're anxious about, that would cause you to, to have that kind of anxiety. So you could be anxious about something that would be sinful because you're not trusting in God. Um, you could be anxious for something because you just came back from war. And there are so many traumatic experiences that you're living in that anxiety. And it may take you a while to get healthy and get out of that again. So is, is it a sin to be anxious? It could be. If you are, it's not necessarily. 
It could be if you're not trusting in God for something and so you're anxious for that. So it's really be anxious for nothing is more of a, hey, get out of that. Instead of being like, that's a horrible, you know, awful sin, stop being anxious, but everything with prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. And then also talks about, think about whatever's true, whatever's honorable, what is holy, whatever's pure. So redirecting your thoughts to God, being positive in the way that you think, rather than being negative in the way that you think, to be able to help you through um, your anxiety. And it kind of also falls in the line of, we see a lot of um, people in the Bible who struggled with anxiety and depression, uh, a crisis, some kind of a some kind of an emotional crisis, and God can help us with that. And Daru, I would take that to God, and I would ask Him for help on um, when you're struggling with anxiety that is connected to um, your old job, which was an autopsy. And I can kind of see how you could become anxious um, from having a job like that. All right. Um, so uh, Justin True said, "The joy of the Lord is our strength. It is a joy that is set in an eternal happiness." Uh, regardless of temporary challenges. Uh, amen. I, I agree 100%. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Uh, sometimes just making the, turning the focus, like the psalmist said, why so downcast, oh, my soul, talking to himself, but then he answered himself, hope in God. God's the answer to hope in, in that. And I think that there's only one psalm where the despair continues all the way through the psalmist that the psalmist says that somehow in the psalm connect up with something that he's given us the psalm because he was in despair and now came out of that despair. Yeah, okay. So Justin True also said, even in pain, loss, or suffering, I know that eternal inheritance of Christ is in me, consist, uh, uh, constant and forever. So even when I'm sad, I have joy. Yeah, I, um, yeah, I understand that. I am, um, I've, I've had deep grief in my life. I lost my wife 10 years ago in December, and I know what it was like to go through grief. I know what it was like to not want to live anymore. Um, let me put it another way. I knew what it was like to not care if I lived anymore. I just told God, take me. I'm done. I'm fine. You can take me. I don't care. Let me live. Let me die. I don't care. I know what it's like to be in that deep grief. And when people are going through that grief, uh, we need to have a compassion on them, even though we know that God can bring them up out of this and that God will. Sometimes people have to go through that grief to be healthy, to be able to get healthy and come out of the other side. Sometimes the losses are, are deep. Sometimes they're profound. And even though I might not be affected the same way, I've seen people go into deep depression over the loss of an animal. And maybe you've experienced that. And, and so I just think it's, I just think that we don't want to put pretty little snapshots on someone's particular situation that is so complex. It's more complex than we can even think about. And God can rescue them through it. And we want the scriptures to be there, but we certainly don't want to put a quippy little saying on top of that instead of, empathizing with them, being there with them, helping them to carry whatever it is that they're struggling with and the anxiety, not judging them for the anxiety. Remember, we can judge sin, but it's hard to judge what people are going through inside because we don't know what's going on inside of them. So we want to be careful 
that we don't end up judging someone who may be depressed or that may have anxiety. We, we want to just be there for them, help lift them up. That's what we're called to do. Bear one another's burdens, speak to one another in, um, in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Um, yeah, so I, yeah, we want to try to help them out and not, um, and not, and not judge them. All right. So yeah, I see a conversation going on here about that. And, and I would agree, Vivian. Um, yeah, don't stop taking your meds without going to your doctor and talking to them first, because a lot of these things are addictive and they have to be taken off of. I mean, you gotta be, you gotta be taken off of slowly. So you gotta, you gotta be careful. And, um, again, I just, just wouldn't, Vivian, I wouldn't let someone judge you on that. I would go back to your doctor, talk to them, talk to God, seek God's direction on that. All right. So, um, I, I appreciate that. Um, and I also appreciate the conversation in the chat being around what we're talking about. I think that that can be, um, very, very helpful. All right. Um, so let's see, do we have another question here? Um, yeah, we've got one from Violet Stag. Violet Stag, good to see you. Good to have you here with us today. Uh, Violet Stag says, why does Jesus say a divorced woman marrying another man is adultery? Is there some context I'm missing? Maybe. Um, so God said, for this reason, this is Genesis 2, I think. For this reason, a man and a woman shall leave the father and mother, and the two will be joined together and become one flesh. Now, that one flesh union is speaking about, about intercourse, about joining together and knowing one another. And the Bible said, and he knew her, and they mean intercourse by that. And it brought them together and made them one flesh. Now, God... That was God's plan for marriage, a man and a woman joining together and becoming one flesh. Now, polygamy entered into it, and polygamy had all kinds of problems. Everybody in the Bible that was a polygamist, like Abraham and David, um, Solomon, all had great problems in their lives because God's design was for one man, one woman to be married. So Jesus says, uh, if, if a man divorces his wife for any other reason but sexual immorality and marries another, he is committing adultery. Because in God's eyes, the first marriage still sticks. So he he divorced her, but there was no sexual immorality. So the reason that someone can divorce today is if there's someone's been unfaithful. And th if they are unfaithful, they break the marriage vow. And that breaks the bonds. Those two have been tore apart by the by the breaking of that marriage vow. And so now this person is free to marry someone else. But if they just divorce them, they're still married in the eyes of God. And so marrying another person makes them commit adultery. Now, Paul went on to talk a little bit more about divorce and marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He said, Jesus said not to divorce. But I say to you, if a man does divorce his wife, let him remain single or, or be reconciled. And there are all kinds of people today who do not want to follow that. And they'll say, well, I don't believe that. I believe something different about it. Of course you do, because you're divorcing your wife and you're marrying another woman. And so you're just not going to admit that you're doing something that is sinful, but you are. 
something the Bible directly speaks against. Sometimes divorce is necessary. Even when there hasn't been some kind of a, there's, there's abuse, physical abuse. There's, there's just all different kinds of abuse going on. And you're talking with, you're talking through it with a pastor or a counselor and you make the decision, I need to separate from them, but I'll remain single the rest of my life because this, this is not the right relationship to be in. Then there's, if you're married to a non-believer and he wants to stay, you remain married to him. If he goes, you're free. So it's like that, the non-believer who says, I don't want to be married to a believer anymore, or you became a Christian, I don't want to be married to you. That breaks the marriage bond and that person is free to remarry someone. All right. So I hope that, um, that it helps you understand. This is why very important that we are go slow. We pray. We want to be equally yoked when we're choosing a spouse. All right. Um, and so, yeah, uh, when someone was divorced for another reason, in sexual immorality and married another, they committed adultery. Sexual immorality broke that um, broke that marriage already. All right, and um, Jesus said that Moses allowed divorce because of the hardness of your heart. And a lot of times, people will use that to tell a woman that has been wronged or a husband that's been wronged by a woman not to harden their heart, but to be forgiving towards them. But the hardness of the heart was the person that committed the adultery not the person that was offended. The person that was unoffended has a right to say, I can handle it or I can handle it. All right, so follow up. Um, I am actually strictly talking about Matthew 532. Apparently it says whomever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, let's just take a look at this real quick um, here. And uh, we can see um, if we could find out anything on here, Matthew 532. Um, so let me just go and put this up on the screen for you. So it says, um, furthermore, let's see, marriage is sacred and binding is the, the new King James heading. Um, furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That's the law that's under Moses. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason, except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. So if she marries another, she's committing adultery because the marriage is still binding if there was a divorce except for sexual immorality. God still sees the marriage as binding. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So this, remember, sexual immorality, whoever divorces a, a wife for any other reason except sexual immorality. So you've got to take it in context. You can't come down and take the end of this and whoever mar marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. You can't take that out of context and say, that doesn't mean whoever divorces his wife for any other reason except sexual immorality has committed, uh, has caused her to commit adultery. It's all connected to the same thing. So if someone has been unfaithful and a woman divorces her husband, that woman can remarry. All right. Um, context is always important and um, we see the context there. Okay. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. While it's like, I mean, appreciate you being here with us. Um, so we've got just another minute or so. Let me go down here and just look and see if we got another question. We do. We'll have this be our last question of the day. Uh, and I appreciate you guys. Love you. Stay close to Jesus. I love the community that we're growing here and the way that we can interact with one another. Um, so Heavenly, good to see you, Heavenly. Heavenly says, sometimes people call out to the Lord in panic or anger. Do you think that's wrong? I don't think it's ever wrong to call out to the Lord. 
that there's no wrong motive for it. So if you're if you're angry and you're like, God help me, you know, uh, maybe even you know, just yeah, there's not a, um, um, panic. Certainly not. I was tra uh, trailering a boat and it came unhitched from the the truck and I think I cried out, Jesus help, <laughs> and, and it was sheer panic because we were going 70 miles an hour down the freeway and the boat started just pulling on the chains back and forth. And I thought it was going to take the truck and every and, and both me and Kathy off the road. And um, I, I think I crawled out to Jesus in panic and anger. No, I don't think it's wrong in any of those, either of those cases um, to call out to him. Um, could be a righteous anger too, right? What if there's someone attacking you and you're angry? Now the, the fight or flight has kicked in and you call out for help as you're defending yourself or defending someone whom you love. So yeah, calling out to God in anger or panic is not wrong, all right? I don't think there's ever a bad reason to call out to God in whatever emotional state you're in. I don't think you've got to get yourself into a calm state before you can call out to God, all right? So it's been good to be here with you guys. Good to look over these questions with you. Hopefully, it's been helpful to you. Stay close to Jesus. Uh, we have a service in about an hour. We are in the book of Revelation. We're going to be talking about the faithful church. So we're going to talk about what it was that God prized that made them faithful because we want to do those things in our life. We want to be the faithful church. He comes to every church, but he comes to them for different reasons. And this one, he comes quickly, he says, for them that he's going to take, keep them out of the hour of testing that's going to come upon the whole world. So I look forward to covering uh, this passage in Revelation chapter 3. I think it's 7 through 13 is the passage we're covering tonight. I look forward to covering it. Uh, if you can join us online, great. We're here in town, Tucson. We have two services, one at our East Campus at 6 p.m. That's the one that will be online. That's Mountain Standard Time. We don't go on and off daylight savings time. So it's always Mountain Standard Time. So if you're in another city state that does, just look up Mountain Standard Time. Not daylight Mountain Standard Time, but Mountain Standard Time. And then that that's um, what time you can watch our service. It'll be an hour from right now. The service will start and I'll be teaching about 620. All right. So um, I love you guys. Stay close to Jesus. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Uh, find yourself walking close to him. Um, Walk in love towards one another. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And in doing this, you fulfill the law and the prophets. God bless you guys. Love you. I'm out. We'll see you later on.